Hello, this is Serena Blaze. The Left in Oklahoma podcast is a production of Oklahoma Activist. It is hosted by myself, recorded in Oklahoma City, and distributed free of charge as a public service. Its mission is to widen the political dialogue in Oklahoma, increase civic awareness and activism, and support policies that create justice and enhance the common good. To paraphrase Woody Guthrie, this podcast kills fascists. You can download the show from leftinoklahoma.com or oklahomaactivist.com or subscribe using any of the online feeds listed there, including YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and, coming soon, iTunes. You can contribute to the costs involved with production and distribution by making a donation or, even better, a monthly recurring contribution. Regular contributors can, if desired, be listed as sponsors of the program. Please share the podcast, however you access it, with your friends, colleagues, and networks. If you would like to contribute an original segment to the podcast, news, event, or opinion, suggest a topic, or submit feedback, please use our instructions and submission feedback form on the websites mentioned above. We reserve the right to read your written feedback on the show unless you indicate otherwise. Thank you for listening and for supporting Left in Oklahoma. Please fasten your seatbelts and don't adjust your dial. You're turning left in Oklahoma. February 26, 2018, and this is Left in Oklahoma, and this is Serena Blaze. It is time to trek back through the Oklahoma political swamp and look ahead to see if we can find some news, events, actions that can make a difference, if only to keep us sane in this mad state and world. I have to admit that I am dragging a bit this week, finding it hard to get going on a Monday morning, but pushing through and getting this done for you because I care about you. I want you to know what's going on and I enjoy sharing what I know and think. So there you have it. I do try to focus on things that combat cynicism in my personal life and in this podcast I don't I don't want to gloss over the steady and all too real stream of bullshit and bad intentions that's all around us I don't think I can be an effective presenter of that and there are plenty of people in alternative media who are doing it are good at it And they're seemingly able to maintain their composure through it all, which I I don't think I am. 
they managed to keep my outrage meter at 11 or beyond. We've not, I say 11 beyond, because we haven't seen the worst of it. You just have to reserve a large space on the right of that dial, okay? I know I am. But I work best by taking in that information to the degree that I can without it being harmful to my mental health and then process it into the question of what's what's within reach in front of me that I can do that has a tangible result. That's how I approach this podcast, which is just a reflection of how I operate as an activist and organizer. So that's what we are going to do. Of course, the week, this past week, has been dominated by the aftermath of the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And in the couple of weeks that have passed since that event, um, I know a lot of people are feeling very hopeful, and I have to say that I, w- I was initially skeptical, and I'm referring to, you know, the aftermath in terms of what the students are doing by speaking out and kind of changing the direction of the uh, gun control debate. And I was skeptical at that. I pushed back a little bit to people that were um, expressing that optimism in on Facebook, but that's just because, not because I'm not generally a, a hopeful person, someone who grasps onto hope at every opportunity, but that there's just been so many occasions where you think, well, this has to be the turning point, right? Certainly when, um, you know, when, when 26 kids and teachers get gunned down in school, you'd think that would, if there, if people were going to be reacting and doing something that that would certainly be the trigger point, but there's certainly been others since then. There's been so, so many um, mass shootings and major ones like Las Vegas, but certainly something seems to be a little different here, and there's lots of an analysis available out there as to why that might be the case, so I'll leave you to that. But I just wanted to say that, you know, even though initially I held back letting myself hope too much, and I still do a bit, but I think I am moving along toward hope now, um, that, that the pressure point really seems to be sticking, and I can see some real prospect of incremental change being forced onto the majority in Congress. So I'm, I'm getting there, maybe. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, though, just being realistic and seeing, you know, as I said, seeing so many missed opportunities and, uh, and seeing as what we have in the White House that is the final stage of making any, any legislation into law, I have a lot less hope that anything produced 
out of Congress, if anything is, that that would be signed into law. L let me just, like, say it that way. But I don't want to dampen anyone else's enthusiasm either, or my own, because there are some really good things to focus on that are bringing some light to the darkness. So um, if you're able to hang on to that hope and, and push it forward, uh, that's great. I think, I think that's what we need to do. I think sometimes it, it can become a self-fulfilling reality and help uh, move the conversation forward. But certainly the students speaking out so forcefully and eloquently have impressed the nation and the world, or most of it. I mean, you do have the usual 30 to 35% of radical right-wingers who attack and distort, who believe the most ludicrous conspiracy theories and pass them on without any sign of logical thought which is all the result of 30 years of ingesting toxic right-wing media. So I think the students are impressing people outside of that, that group of naysayers and are making a difference, and I, I just applaud them. And I also want, since this is an Oklahoma podcast, I do want to mention the very exciting... Uh, news that students in Oklahoma are also stepping up in this fight and are well underway uh, in, in planning an event uh, that will mirror the March 24th event in Washington, but, but cities ac across the nation are doing associated events on that day, and we are having one in Oklahoma City and in Tulsa. So far, those, those are definitely happening. Others may be added, but the students, high school students, have stepped up to plan those events on their own, seeking very wisely taking control of things, but accepting uh, information and advice from a local activists with experience. And but they but they are in charge and also wisely the adults are letting them be in charge and so that's I'm just very thrilled and excited by that. I'm I'm so I'm so proud of all of these young people from Parkland to here in Oklahoma across the country that are fighting back. I just want to I just want to say that I'm so grateful for their courage and determination and and bless them their their guilelessness their frankness is so refreshing unlike most of the corporate media mouthpieces and the politicians they say what is clearly reality they can see with their own eyes without having to appease advertisers ceos donors or or whatnot that all these other people who just are you can't believe a word that comes out of their mouth so all that said, uh, in this current situation, I do also feel it needs to be pointed out that this same pride and hope has been available, has been available among us for a few years now, and that's as a result of the young people fighting back through Black Lives Matter and other groups against the gross injustices and violence they have experienced 
in Ferguson, Baltimore, in jail cells, at traffic stops, or just on the sidewalks of cities and towns across this nation. These young people, and, and many of them, it needs to be said, are without the distinct advantages of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas kids, but they are just as brave, just as wild, uh, wise, and their work is just as meaningful. So I'm including them when I say that I'm awed and inspired by all these young people. I'm so glad to know that after my generation has done such a miserable job of things, they are already at work, cleaning up the mess we've so callously left behind for them. It should not be their job to do this, but alas, that's what they are inheriting. And they can make the world, they can make a world where all children, all children have access to a quality education, safe schools and neighborhoods, a justice system, that treats all people with dignity and fairness. So I feel blessed to know that that day is coming and that they will outlive us and outdo us. They have already outgrown us and seen through our sorry media and corrupt government and kicked it out of their way, for which I am grateful. So that's what I think we all need to do as responsible dwellers on this little rock in a random galaxy, kick aside what is ugly, mean, destructive, and pick up a tool, a pen, a sign, a microphone maybe, and get to the business of restoring sanity, restoring balance and order. So let's get to it, shall we? Okay, so let's look at some news. Um, this is a story from Raw Story, rawstory.com, uh, by Martin Sizmar, C-I-Z-M-A-R, posted on February 25th, and the headline is, Oklahoma congressman who owns rifle factory blames video games and lack of Jesus in schools for Florida massacre. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same old, same old, but let, let's look at this because I think it's, it's kind of, it has a couple of interesting factors in it we can remark on. So it starts out with a quote from Oklahoma Representative Mark Wayne Mullen. The first thing everybody wants to talk about is gun control, he says. But instead, Mullen said it was important to look at, quote, the whole situation, unquote. And, of course, he then proceeds to not look at the whole situation. But the article goes on. Mullen, the owner of a successful plumbing business who did not serve in the armed forces or in law enforcement, approaches the problem of school shootings, quote, based on experiences I've had in my life, unquote. So what experience is he talking about? Well, he goes on to explain to the reporter that he came upon his two teenage sons 
playing Call of Duty, which is a video game, it's a shooting game set in World War II. And he says he walked upstairs and found his sons playing this game and found that the graphics were so real that it just, I mean, he had a little panic attack there. He said he palms got sweaty and he made them turn it off and he's never let them play it since, he says. And he then goes on to say, explaining that the Hollywood elites, they always want to go on about gun control, gun control, gun control, while they're making millions and billions off exposing our kids, this generation, to violence and glorifying in it. Games that are supposed to be entertainment are desensitizing our kids to the violence, what it's really like. Unquote. Now, let me interject. Mullen was born in 1977, making him 40 years of age this year. I'm a bit older than that, and I remember what was being said about the effects of violence when he was a teenager. And let me tell you, in case you're not aware, that it was exactly the same thing because this is a trope that is older than dirt. It's older than Hollywood. <laughs> it's older than movies and video games. All right. And if we really want to look at the whole situation, as he claims he wants to do, we need to look at the whole world that consumes Hollywood movies and American video games with all their violence. And I'm not denying the violence there, but that's another conversation. But those things have been going on for quite some time and they are consumed all around the world. And yet somehow it's only in the United States with our lax gun laws that we're getting mass shooting after mass shooting and uh, school uh, mass murder uh, and, and, and AR-15s in school room after school room. So that's, that's really the whole picture there, just to give Mullen uh, a little insight. Now, the article goes on to then talk to another Oklahoma Republican representative, Steve Russell, who serves over here in the Oklahoma City area. And he, uh, <clears throat> he sent out a newsletter after the Florida high school shooting, which, you know, they are wont to do because they like to... Um, uh, get donations based on uh, their support for gun uh, proliferation. And of course, Steve Russell owns a gun store. But anyway, he said, as quoted in this article from his email, quote, we cannot get to a solution simply by going after the tools. Well, that's that's their argument. As I said, he does own a gun um a manufacturing company and he says it means Hollywood so he 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 blames Hollywood again but he then he goes on to say he thinks it's the fact that Jesus 
has been kicked out of the classrooms, right? And he says, quote, uh, the, oh, the solution, he says, quote, means our educators being willing to admit that resistance to our Judeo-Christian ethic in teaching respect and morality in the classroom has created untethered generations who struggle to identify what is right and wrong, unquote. And of course, that's, again, old trope. Um, uh, you can go back to ancient Greece. <coughs> Man, I'm having throat problems here. Um, you can go back to ancient Greece to find that very, I mean, practically word for word, the kids these days, you know? Well, it's the adults who are fighting wars across the planet that seem endless, the longest wars in our history as a country, certainly, and it's not the kids that are doing that. I think they know very well what is right and wrong, and that's why when they speak out about, about gun violence, the adults that support gun proliferation, plur, uh, the, the pro-slaughter lobby, you know, are getting so upset about it because they do know the difference between right and wrong, and they know that what's, what we're having right now is wrong. All right, so that's the raw story thing. I do, uh, I'll just mention that another Oklahoma politician, this time Senator Langford, he was on Meet the Press and speaking to Chuck Todd. He did correctly note that the warning signs about the Parkland shooter were abundant and were not acted on. But in many cases, the reasons those behaviors cannot trigger intervention before a shooting takes place is that Second Amendment purists like Senator Lankford and the aforementioned representatives from Oklahoma will not, will not allow common sense safeguards to be, to be put on uh, gun purchases. He, uh, Langford, he did say that he would support some increase in background check coordination between states and law enforcement agencies, and that would be a small improvement. So a little tick off for credit where due for that small step. But he did also talk about the mental health solution, quote unquote, and that is, of course, not really addressing the real issue. Yes, we do need better mental health care, certainly, and, and uh, I think the record of the liberal side of the slate uh, seeking that is clear, but in this context, it's a red herring uh, when talking about these mass murders, because statistically, those with mental illness are form, far more likely to be the victims of crime, and the U.S. does not have more mental illness per capita than other countries that would account for our huge amount of gun violence. What we have more of, vastly more of, are guns and easy access to them. And that is why we have vastly more gun violence. And the types of guns involved in these shootings are weapons of war. Personally, I don't even think they should be involved in war, frankly. Let them, like, work it out fist to fist um, if you must fight. 
Um, but they certainly should not be the, in the hands of any amosexual with anger issues who wants one. And so that brings us to the Second Amendment. Because that's where it all is grounded in, in terms of legislation in this country. So let's talk about the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those are the words of the Second Amendment in toto. And the meaning of this amendment has been argued about for a long time, and its application has been manipulated and distorted almost beyond recognition. And, and so I want to uh, point out that that study of the Second Amendment, its history, uh, has been made into uh, a book by Oklahoma's own Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and it is it could not be more timely i have not yet read it let me specify that i have not yet read it but i do look forward to doing so but i want to tell you about it based on the the promotional material and some stuff i found online about the book it's called loaded and the subtitle is a disarming history of the second amendment now who is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. If you have not heard about her, you need to get familiar with her. She grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and a part Indian mother. And she's the author of quite a few books at this point, including Outlaw Woman, which is a memoir of her time in an armed underground group, Red Dirt Growing Up Oakey, and another, uh, Blood on the Border, a memoir of the Contra War. And most recently, prior to this book Loaded, she wrote a book that has been widely acclaimed and won awards called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. But this new book, again, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment, she posits that U.S. gun culture and all the domestic and global Massacre, massacres that uh, issue from it are linked to the role of guns in seizing Native American land, black enslavement, and global imperialism, which are part of our U.S. history. And she explains how guns became ingrained in American society and how damaging this so-called right truly is. She says that the U.S.'s culture of violence contributes to the sanctification of the Second Amendment. So I do look forward to reading that, and I think it would um, it, it's an important part of this debate we're currently having in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. So I want to then move on to reading you um, a book a blog post by one of my favorite bloggers. He goes by the name of Boo Man. His, his real name is Martin Longman. His blog is at 
boomantribune.com. He also writes and edits for the Washington Monthly. He's a, a very, I, I consider him one of the wisest writers on the internet, and I think it's a damn shame that that very stupid people are getting uh, paid vast sums of money to write in newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, very stupid, very unwise, very wrong almost all of the time, while Booman has to do panhandling, basically, to get paid for his fantastic content. So that's a little plug for for Booman and Martin Longman. Um, I've just I've been a reader of his his blog for a long time and I I read everything there and I I really commend it. I try to share them all and I feel rather frustrated that more more of my friends are not reading. <coughs> so sorry about my throat. Are not reading the Booman Tribune. So please go there, read. Anyway, this piece was posted on February 23rd, and it's titled, The Second Amendment is an Anachronism. Now, and he starts like this. The U.S. Constitution provided for a permanent navy, but it would not do the same for an army. And here he quotes from Article 1, Section 8, Clause 12 of the Constitution. The Congress shall have the power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. And Booman then says, Raising an army was supposed to take a special legislative act and be limited in time to meet some crisis. Of course, even at the slower pace of the 18th century, in a time of crisis, it could conceivably take too long to raise an army. So, state militias were the first line of defense. The Constitution provided for this, too. And here he quotes from Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 to 16. Quote, the Congress shall have power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing, governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. End quote from the Constitution. At the time, the states were vastly more divided than they are today, Booman continues, particularly on the issue of religion. The Congregationalists of Massachusetts, the Presbyterians of New Jersey, the Quakers of Pennsylvania, the Catholics of Maryland, the Anglicans of Virginia, and the Baptists of the Carolinas did not trust some overarching federal government to control their militias. This is why the states maintained the right to appoint their own officers and the training of their own soldiers. They would not have submitted to anything like the National Guard that we have today. 
they also had the responsibility for arming their own militias. And this was partly because the federal government sure as hell didn't want to pay for the expense. In fact, after the Whiskey Rebellion broke out in 1791, Congress decided that they needed to codify how militias were to be used in the future. In the Militia Acts of 1792, Congress was clear that the responsibility for arming the militias lied not just with the states, but with every male citizen. Quote, this quote from the Militia Acts of 1792. Militia members, referred to as every citizen so enrolled and notified, shall within six months thereafter provide himself with a musket, bayonet, and belt, two spare flints, a cartridge box with 24 bullets, and a knapsack. Men owning rifles were required to provide a powder horn, one-fourth pound of gunpowder, 20 rifle balls, a shooting pouch, and a knapsack. Unquote. Now, we're working a little outside of a strict chronology here, but it's easy to see how the Second Amendment's concern with a well-regulated militia fits in. How, for example, could a man provide his own musket if he was prevented from buying one? So, on the one hand, the distrust of standing armies and of an overarching federal power led to the adoption of the Second Amendment, and state militias would remain under state control as much as possible during a federal muster. On the other hand, to make this practicable, the Congress soon concluded that every man must own a firearm. The Second Amendment only restricted what the federal legislature could prohibit, but the Militia Acts applied to the states and their citizens. Now, consider that we have had a National Guard since 1903 and a standing army for much longer than that. I've never met anyone who wouldn't move from one state to another because they didn't want to live under a foreign religion. We haven't had a draft since the 1970s, and the idea that the federal government could compel you to buy a firearm seems tyrannical to every American citizen. If the government does compel us to serve, we expect them to pay for our equipment. We got over our religious differences. We got over our fear of a standing army. We allowed the federal government to play a large role in our state's militias when they were organized into National Guards and Reserves. But somehow, we never got over our adherence to the Second Amendment. In fact, about 10 years ago, the Supreme Court, for the first time in our nation's history, ruled that citizens have an individual right to a firearm, irrespective of their potential service in a militia. We're not living in a country anymore where everyone owns a gun, or where every male citizen can be compelled to own a gun. We aren't relied upon to race to the country's defense if an emergency arises so immediate that there is no time to raise a standing army. Almost every element that was present when the Second Amendment was enacted is absent now. I recognize that many people still believe that an armed citizenry is a bulwark against tyranny, but it's not much of one as the standoff at Waco made clear. The primary way that the Constitution tried to prevent tyranny was by denying the federal government a standing army. To do this, the Founding Fathers devised provisions to make a standing army unnecessary 
or limited in duration. The state militia system was their device for accomplishing this, but it's a solution, it's a solution that predates the Napoleonic Wars. It proved itself unworkable over 200 years ago. The rationale for the Second Amendment is an anachronism. This is true if you look at the narrow language they used, a well-regulated militia being necessary, and it's also true if you look at the wider context and purposes of the amendment. Not only is a militia no longer necessary, but the whole scheme we use for our national defense is a gigantic violation of the principles the amendment sought to preserve and protect. When we get rid of our army, Marines, and Air Force, and we eliminate our National Guards and Reserves, and we reapply the principle that our citizens must be ready to muster to the nation's defense and provide their own equipment, then we can talk about how necessary it is to preserve the Second Amendment. In the meantime, anyone who tells us that the original intent of the founders requires us to consent to the easy availability of AR-15s and other like weapons is completely misinformed. End of blog post. I agree with everything there, there said, and I call for complete repeal of the Second Amendment. That's my opinion. So, before we move on from the Second Amendment, I just want to note, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to call your attention to an article by Paul Finkelman um, that was posted back in January of 2013 at the root, uh, theroot.com, and it's titled Second Amendment Passed to Protect Slavery? No! Exclamation point. Now, first of all, um, Paul Finkelman is, uh, he's a PhD. He is the President William McKinley Distinguished Professor of Law and Public Policy at Albany Law School, and his, this blog post that I'm referring to was actually uh, posted to rebut a piece that was posted by Tom Hartman the week before uh, at Truth Out. So um, just to provide you the context for Finkelman's article, he goes into the, back into history about the the Second Amendment, how the Second Amendment was written, so the people that were involved and their conflict, their interpersonal conflicts, and how that um, played out in the 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 writing of the amendments and the uh, drafting of the Constitution. And basically he says that, quote, there is no evidence, no historical record for Hartman's key proposition that the Second Amendment, which was not written until 1789, was somehow a prerequisite for the ratification of the Constitution in 1788. So um, if you've heard that argument about the Second Amendment being passed to protect slavery, I would, I would urge you to read this piece, which counteracts it. And you can draw your own conclusions after that evidence is laid out. Okay, enough uh, for now, at least, about the Second Amendment. Soon may it pass. Let's get, uh, let's have a break, a short break, and then I will get to some other news events and action items for you. So, let's take a break. 
We'll be right back. Stay tuned. How can I help my daughter with her reading? Searching for help with dachshund reading. Oh. <laughs> Let me try. Sarah's bright, but when she's reading, she has trouble sounding out words. Playing world music. What? I give up. Wait, I was trying to show you how Sarah feels every day. Redirecting to understood.org. Join parents and experts at understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues to help your child thrive. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. All right, welcome back to Left in Oklahoma. This is Serena Blaze. Thanks for listening. Now, we talked about some of the Oklahoma politicians that have been on TV. So I just wanted to mention that Governor Fallon was on C-SPAN recently. I personally could not bring myself to watch it because, um, well, I think why is self-evident. But she was on and she actually did get a little bit of challenging about what her legacy in Oklahoma might be, what she thought her accomplishments were. And um, I, you know, I mean, it was, it was a, a pretty much an exercise in BS. And, um, you know, they, they are uh, expert in that, politicians for the most part, and particularly, uh, in my opinion, Republican politicians. And she's, certainly good in that department and she made her case that she has a wonderful legacy to fall back on uh, in terms of her two terms as Oklahoma governor you can uh, if you live in Oklahoma you you might have a different opinion let me just leave it there all right so um, we were talking about uh, slavery there and and the second amendment and and gun violence for that matter, violence in general. Here is actually a piece of good news in that area of uh, that topic area. And this is from KJRH.com. Um, uh, that's a TV station in Tulsa. And they did a story about the fact that the 1921 Tulsa race riot is now a required curriculum in state public schools. Their story was filed on February 20th. And I'll read just a piece of it filed in Oklahoma City. Senator James Lankford uh, joined uh, today State Senator Kevin Matthews, a Democrat from Tulsa, at Oklahoma City's Douglas High School to announce the completion of education curriculum about the 1921 Tulsa race riot that will be taught statewide. This online toolkit is part of the mission of the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Centennial Commission, which was created a year ago to educate Oklahomans and Americans about the race riot and its impact on the state and nation, remember its victims and survivors, and create an environment conducive to fostering sustainable entrepreneurship and heritage tourism within North, North Tulsa. From May 31 until June 1, 1921, it is estimated that 300 individuals were killed during a race-related massacre in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, an economically and socially vibrant community often called Black Wall Street thrived prior to the riot. 
The curriculum unveiled today tells the story of Black Wall Street, the race riot, and its aftermath. The Oklahoma History Center helped the commission create the curriculum, which can be found and downloaded online at Tulsa2021.org resources. The Oklahoma Department of Education plans to begin including this curriculum in their training for teachers this summer. So I am um, I'm very supportive of this. It's um, it's far too often uh, you find that Oklahomans have white Oklahomans certainly have no idea about this. And I just want to I just want to make a comment about it's it's typically called the Tulsa race riot. I I'm not. I'm not real keen on that framing. Uh, it was, uh, it was, as noted in the article, it was a massacre carried out on people of color by the white population. So that's clearly what it was. If anyone was writing, it was the white folks, and I think the name, um, the name plays into. Uh, you know, existing racial terminology, race riot. I think that's unfortunate that they chose to call it that, but what are you going to do? They are teaching it, so that's the good, that's the good part. All right, moving on, I have some information about some uh, legislation that's moving along rather swiftly through the process, um, I'm happy to say in this case. It's uh, about industrial hemp, and it was sponsored by, is sponsored by, Representative Mickey Dollins, a Democrat from the Oklahoma City area. He posted this update on Facebook on February 23rd. He says, we made it out of the Senate committee today with only one no vote, and the next step is the Senate Appropriations and Budget Committee. So we are close to bringing back a major industry to Oklahoma's economy. Now, I'll just uh, back up and say that uh, this is House Bill 2913. It had previously passed through the House. Again, surprisingly quickly, um, I wouldn't have foreseen that, but this is great. The bill would establish a pilot program to study hemp's environmental impact and economic potential in Oklahoma. The pi- that pilot program would last approximately one to two years and is required to remain federally compliant with the 2014 Farm Act. And uh, uh, Representative Dollins um, pointed out that hemp is now, after uh, legalization, a 4 billion dollar industry in Colorado. That's a billion with a B times four. So that could certainly be helpful to Oklahoma. All right, next let's uh, go to some events that you might want to participate in. You can join uh, Chris Steele and state reform activist for the launch of OCJR's Statewide Criminal Justice Reform 
Initiative. That's Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. They are holding a press conference at the state capitol to discuss their 2018 legislative priorities and long-term policy agenda. Last year, a task force including legislators, law enforcement, policy experts, health service providers, and business leaders studied the Oklahoma criminal justice system and offered evidence-based solutions to safely reduce uh, our incarceration rate and reinvest those savings in alternatives and treatment. So this year, um, the group says, we need your help to push these common sense reforms over the finish line. They are asking that we call our legislators and urge them to pass the task force legislation. They will be holding a, um, an event on Wednesday, March 7th, starting at 10.30 a.m., uh, uh, actually starting at 10 with a breakfast, but then the press conference and uh, in, information uh, session will start at 10.30, and that will be at the state capitol, 2300 North Bo- uh, Lincoln Boulevard, in the governor's large conference room. Again, this is Oklahomans for Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform. You can find out more and RSVP for this event at okjusticereform.org. Now, um, normally action alerts would be here, but, uh, you know, during the legislative session, there are so many moving parts and last-minute notifications that it's impossible to stay on top of it for a weekly podcast. And, you know, I had gathered up some alerts to share with you, but, like, if you they needed to be done, you know, today, they were going to be in committee today on Monday, um, the 26th, and, you know, if you listen to the podcast after that, what was the point? So, you know, it... it even with non-legislative action alerts, like hearing them on a podcast when who knows when you're going to be listening to it, is is hearing all the information orally really the best way to get get what you need so that you can actually follow up at the right page with the right phone number or whatever. So, you know, you listen to a podcast at any time, you're probably like maybe have headphones doing something else at the same time you're not going to be able to write down a phone number so anyway I've just talked myself out of going through all of that on the podcast even though I really want to continue uh, encourage you to to take these actions I just thought I'm going to do it do it a little differently starting with this episode I'm going to describe some issues you might want to take action on and point you to the Oklahoma activist Facebook page where you can find the relevant info um, you know a a nice meme with uh, you know that that makes it clear probably a link to click anyway all that stuff super easy for you to follow up and do your civic duty without me rattling off all that stuff you're not gonna be able to write down or remember anyway so let's just make that going forward Oklahoma activist um, uh, Facebook page and while you're there please like the page follow it that would be awesome anyway 
here are the action for the week that you can find uh, there. You know how a few years back the legislature passed a law that prevented any Oklahoma municipality from passing the minimum wage increase? Now, yeah, they did that because there was a threat that Oklahoma City was going to try to, you know, actives in Oklahoma City were, were at the early stages of getting such a petition going. And the Republicans just stomped that down. And, of course, that's completely topsy-turvy because they're always talking about the value, you know, their value is local control, um, you know, not centralized government, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's gimmitarianism. And, you know, if it serves their purposes, they'll be doing exactly the opposite, which is what they did in that case. So now they're back at it. This time they're preventing citizens from even trying to get local governments to take proactive change by uh, starting a petition, having a petition, asking the citizens of that locality for uh, to pass an extra tax for plastic bags and other containers that are so harmful to our environment. And here's the deal. Take, and this is taken from a post by Bria Clark, uh, the Norman Councilwoman for Ward 6. The Senate General Government Committee approved a bill Monday that would prohibit local governments from enacting ordinances that pro prohibit or apply an extra tax to plastic bags and other auxiliary containers. SB 1465 by Senator James Leewright, a Republican of Bristow, um, received a due pass recommendation with its title stricken on a 6-4 to four vote. The bill prohibits any political subdivision from restricting, taxing, prohibiting, or issuing any ordinance relating to the use, disposition, or sale of auxiliary containers. Lee Wright, responding to a question from Senator Kay Floyd, Democrat Oklahoma City said some local government around the country have been bombarding have been bombarded by activist groups and have implemented prohibitions or additional taxes on things like plastic grocery bags, styrofoam cups and straws. That he added leads to inconsistent regulations within a state that often forces businesses to stop supply products. Lee Wright said Norman was discussing such a potential proposal now, which is why his bill has an emergency clause that would allow the bill to take effect upon Governor Mary Fallon's signature rather than waiting the 90 days otherwise, otherwise required by the Constitution. So uh, Bria is asking that we contact the committee leadership as well as our own state senator to stop this Proposal. Demand that they stop suppressing democracy in Oklahoma. That's what this is. Demand they act on their own proclaimed values of small government and local control. All the info you need can be found in the Oklahoma Activist Facebook page, said before. Now, I just want to say that, you know, this emergency clause, um, it, it may be also, I'm not sure, I'm not a lawyer, I'll have to check with someone, but there's a provision in Oklahoma, not every state has it, but Oklahoma has this, where if the legislature passes a bill, um, the people can't have 90 days to petition to have it struck. You only have that limited time frame to do that. And it would appear 
that by making this a quote-unquote emergency clause, he's trying to also prevent that form of democracy by the people to deal with what he's already suppressing democracy doing by preventing um, cities and towns from even the opportunity to converse about possibly prohibiting or applying an extra tax to these items that are, let's get down to it. You, I, I, you know, look anywhere, go outside, look in any direction, and you, I can almost guarantee you that you will find a plastic bag stuck on uh, something or flying around, plastic bottles lying around. I mean, I came here from Florida. Florida is like super clean because, you know, they depend on uh, the tourist trade. So when I first came to Oklahoma in 2003, I could not get over what a freaking mess it was <laughs> everywhere I looked. I, I lived out at that time in, in El Reno and just, you know, it's a more rural area. So it's even more extreme, I think, there. But just like everywhere, every, every you know, fence, every post was just like, you know, holding some plastic bag, you know, it's just horrible. And, you know, if you've studied at all what these plastic bags do to wildlife, to the environment, you know, it's horrendous. It's And the, the volume is just, I mean, if we're just thinking about something like a straw, which is not, would not be part of this law because it's not a container, but, but I read an article recently about plastic straws and the volume of plastic straws and how detrimental it is. Our addiction to plastic is just uh, part of what's killing us and killing our environment. So I would, I would support tax or a ban. I think we need to move in that direction. But what this law does is prevent even the conversation, even the attempt to ask the citizens of a locality to do this. It's it's just like they did with the minimum wage. And it's anti-democratic. That's the bottom line. So we really need to stop this and stop this whole idea they have of, of contrary to their the words they speak, being against local government and local democracy. Absolutely unacceptable. All right, our next and last action this week is from an email from Johnson Bridgewater, who is the state chair of the Sierra Club, and it's about coal mining and burning of Oklahoma mined coal here in in our state. Again, getting at our saving our environment. He says the solution is to end subsidies for Oklahoma coal. He says that in the midst of our budget crisis, as legislators actively work to protect oil and gas corporations while trying to hamstring wind and solar energy, they have also declined to eliminate tax giveaways to state coal operators. Despite the horrible sulfur content of Oklahoma coal, taxpayers turn over a subsidy for both mining and burning Oklahoma coal, and that has to stop. We are happy to be working to get SB 885 out of the Finance Subcommittee of the Senate Appropriations Committee. 
SB 885 would end all coal tax subsidies in the state of Oklahoma. So please call your senator and ask them to support SB 885. He provides some um, calling tips, which we'll link to, and as well as uh, a background on Oklahoma coal tax incentives. He finishes by saying ending coal subsidies is an idea also recommended by the Oklahoma Tax Incentives Special Review Commission. You can read their assessment showing no economic benefit and uh, their recommendation at the link we will share. Now, okay, those are our um, those are our actions. Before I sign off, how about some meta? Last week, I posted a note on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com/peacearena, about some ideas for new segments for this show, and I offered four possible topics, which were tech tips for activists, civics corner. Oklahoma Progressive History, and Scott Pruitt Watch. The results were overwhelmingly for Civics and Pruitt Watch, though Tech Tips also got a little love in that uh, survey. And the good news is that I found someone to work with on a Civics podcast, which might just end up being a standalone podcast aimed at a national audience, and uh, so I'll, I'll let you know more about that as that project develops. As for the Pruitt Watch idea, oh my God, once I started thinking about it, I just kept seeing article after article about Pruitt, most of them new, not even a backlog, um, about his shenanigans. Holy moly. I don't know, that might just be too overwhelming a project to tackle in addition to the regular podcast. I might need uh, a partner or just might, might need to, like, you know, put that on the side. Um, if you're interested in following that and want to be involved in doing that um, as a tangent to this podcast, as a separate podcast, I would be more than happy to work with anyone, help them set up on the tech end and um, learn the ropes and all that good stuff. I think it's a great idea and it did get um, quite a bit of response, uh, positive response of folks showing that they were interested in such a show. So if you've been looking for an idea, take that one in and consider it. Uh, at any rate, that leaves me with the tech tips idea. And that would be a relatively easy thing for me to include since it's already in my regular line of work. So that, that will be coming um, probably as the last thing on the podcast so that those who are not interested in it can just um, bypass it without missing anything else. So just um, giving you a heads up about that. If you have, have some tech questions, feel free to send them to me. I'm most competent on internet-related issues common software tools like Microsoft Office and Google Drive, uh, the blogging platform WordPress, blogging in general, as well as 
Facebook and Twitter. I do not do Apple products at all. So those are your questions. You will need to take them elsewhere. I would kind of like to do this if I can as a question and response kind of thing. So if I can get you guys to send me your issues, your questions on tech issues, that would get me, uh, get the ball rolling. But if not, I'll probably use things that come up in the course of my work with my clients and fellow activists. And of course, my, most of my clients are activist organizations of one kind or another. So that, will, that would help activists in general. Well, anyway, so that, that's all in the future, but uh, keep it in mind. Another piece of meta is that Left in Oklahoma is now available on YouTube and SoundCloud. I do want to thank my friend and fellow activist, Sam Fredrickson, who has assisted me in getting things together for that YouTube channel. It is, the channel's name is Left in Oklahoma, so you can find it right there. He has been really providing critical support in getting the images and everything done for a video uh, version of Left in Oklahoma, and I really thank him profusely for that. I met Sam through the Our Revolution Oklahoma group, which I've mentioned before. We both work with that group, and Sam is a great, very valuable member working hard to restore democracy in the United States and get money and uh, the corruption it brings and breeds out of politics, out of our body politic and civics. So I really appreciate him, especially because he is already tech savvy. <laughs> and while I really, uh, I love all the activists that I work with to help them with their tech issues, get them to use the many tools that are available for activists for very low cost. It's really great to have somebody come in and be able to hit the ground running in that department. Of course, everyone brings their own skill set and many who may not be tech savvy are very savvy in other things that I don't have much knowledge or proficiency in. So it all balances out. But at any rate, Sam has been helpful in the tech end of things for me. And again, grateful to him for that. So check us out on the uh, on the YouTube channel. If you are on SoundCloud, if you have that app installed, you can find us there again, Left in Oklahoma. So uh, please do. And if you're there, uh, share it around. Thank you for doing that. So that's it for this week. I've gone on even longer than usual. But thank you for listening. And as ever, I do appreciate your feedback, pro or con, to this podcast episode to the podcast in general. Uh, I apologize for some of the voice issues. I've just got a little frog in my throat. I don't think anything health-wise, just an issue with allergies and whatnot. Let me just finish by telling you where you can give me uh, that feedback 
and that would be at oklahomaactivist.com using the contact form there. You can reach me, the Oklahoma Activist Facebook page, or Twitter account, which is OKActivist, or you can text me at 405-598-RENA, R-E-N-A. This is Serena Blaze. Until next time, be well, be kind, be active.